so here we are, our first day of practice. In this building, which was a forest, we are housed in a building of trees, literally, quite obviously. So I'm wondering how you're all doing after being up in the mountains for 24 hours. Hopefully the, the mountains are working their magic on you. The sounds, the birds, the wind, the grasses, the light, the flowers, the river, the stones, the silence, the moon. There's a lot going on up here. (laughs) So I wanted to say some words about uh, practice in nature, since that's what we're doing. And I want to start with going back to the origins of this tradition, which is 25, 2600 years ago in northern India in the forests and the plains, mostly forests back then, where the Buddha practiced, the Buddha-to-be practiced as a, as a yogi, as a homeless wanderer, seeking awakening and inspiration from teachers and meditation and lived in the, you know, renounced his palatial princely life went into the forest which at the time many many people did in that culture and uh, spent six years wandering studying meditating with different teachers alone with friends in the forest and as you may know the pivotal night of his awakening happened under a sal tree, a Bodhi tree as it's called. As the new moon rose in the sky uh, through long, diligent practice of mindfulness and self-observation and attained realization of uh, awakening realized its true nature, different ways to talk about it, and then spent the next 45 years of his life wandering, teaching, meditating still in the forests and bamboo groves and the plains. And if you read the text, you'll see that his teaching is full of beautiful metaphors from nature, farming, the seasons of the forest. And clearly he was a lover of nature. And at the end of many teachings, many texts, he will say, uh, okay, this is the teaching, and there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go practice there. Seek solace in the forest, lest you regret it later. 
So he was encouraging in different ways his monks and nuns to go into the into the forest to find a quiet place, uh, establish mindfulness, and to to practice, to look, to inquire into themselves and into that relationship with life. And for centuries after that, as Grove mentioned this morning, people have been going to the woods, to the mountains, to the caves, to the forests, to the wilderness, to the desert, in different traditions, in search of something, in search of themselves, in search of solitude, in search of silence, peace. So there's something very profound that nature supports in us. As I'm sure you've tasted in just this 24 hours, <coughs> how different you might be than you were, you know, at Albuquerque Airport or driving up from Santa Fe or the last day in the, in the office you had. And there's something, even if we did absolutely nothing here for the next five days and just drank in the ambience of this place, that would have its own profound effect. And mostly what we're doing here is nothing. <laughs> really, the less we do, the better. You know, we sit and we walk and we do little things like that, but the point is simply to be present to what's here, to ourselves, to the land, to the teachings of the land, so, one of my favorite teachers is uh, no longer alive, Achan Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai forest meditation teacher and master. And he was a young man, bright young scholar, who uh, was living in Bangkok or some city in Thailand and got fed up with the, the uh, establishment, as it were, and uh, went to into the, the forests in southern Thailand and established a monastery called Wat Swan Muk, which means Garden of Liberation, and uh, spent the next, I don't know, 50, 60 years teaching, meditating, studying, and um, many, many students from the East and the West would study with him, and um, when... You'd go to study with him, he would basically say, go find a cabin in the woods, which there are many, and sit and walk in the forest, and let nature do the rest. Let nature do its work on you. Let discover your true nature through being in nature. So he did also give a lot of very amazing teachings, but mostly he would say, listen to the forest. And by doing that, by sitting and walking in the forest, what would happen is, he would say, we develop a natural samadhi, natural, gathered, collected, awake mind. So you may notice that, that, that meditation, that nature supports a kind of a, a grounded, balanced presence that we are often trying to cultivate when we're sitting. It quiet calms us down, stills, it makes us more present.
So I'm noticing as I'm sitting here today, feeling both the presence of the land, but also the reverberation from my life. (laughs) You know, we don't just come to a place and suddenly unwind the last 50 years of our conditioning. (laughs) The busyness, the rushing, the planning, the thinking, the worrying, the angsting, all the things we normally do with our mind don't just suddenly... We don't leave them at Albuquerque Airport in the locker, unfortunately. <laughs> they follow us, so we we work with that. So maybe you're also noticing that, that there's both the, the outer world experience and then there's our inner life that's reverberating from how we've been living. And hopefully they come into more alignment as we spend more time here, as we feel the influence So I want to say a few words about why we practice outdoors. It might be pretty obvious, (laughs) but I want to sort of go through them anyway and just just highlight some points. And then uh, and also talk about um, some of the things that nature practice reveals and certainly my own experience. So... So as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that's most obvious is we get more attentive when we're outside. Anybody notice that? You're more attentive, more curious, more alert, more present, more engaged, because it's beautiful. It's complex, it's subtle, it's exquisite, it's diverse. And so it, it pricks up our attention to looking, seeing, smelling, sensing. So I want to read this poem from Mary Oliver that's um, often equated with this practice, meditation and nature, called The Summer's Day. And she says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? As we've been seeing so many grasshoppers today. Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, whose jaws are moving back and forth instead of up and down, who's looking around, gazing around with her large and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings and flies away. I don't exactly know what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention, how to kneel down in the grass, how to fall down into the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So often in our lives, we're too busy to notice. We're rushing, we're planning, we've got meetings, we've got all these important things to do. And so we're invited here to slow down. Slow down the mind, slow down the body, so we can actually notice this beauty that's all around us. So another thing that we might be feeling is a sense of uh, 
space or perspective. You know, often we're in our lives and in our dramas and we get so caught up in them, on the emails and whatever we're doing on the computer, and then we step outside and we feel the air and we see the sky and there's wind and there's, there's life. There's just, life is so much vaster than our own little dramas that we get so caught up in. And it's such a relief, isn't it, to step outside and suddenly, oh yeah, right, it's summer. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a cloudy day, it's a windy day. Oh yeah, there's something other than whether I'm going to be able to pay the rent next month or get my emails done or whatever we're caught up in. Maybe you're noticing the silence. Maybe you're lying in bed last night, feeling the silence of the, the night air. Or even with all the you know, nature's actually rarely silent, as you've probably noticed. You know, it's busy with life. <laughs> Birds and mating calls and wind and rivers and but in but beyond that there's a lot of silence. And even I love listening to the sound of frogs at night or the crickets, which often can get quite loud, but but even within that there's a lot of silence. There's a stillness. We access something deeper or more mysterious. And my sense is for most people, we have to work a little less hard in quieting the mind when we're outdoors than when we're in indoors sitting. There's something about, about the effect of nature. And I, what I love to being outside is seeing how much we're affected by the environment. You know, we have this illusion, the mind has this illusion, Western society has this illusion that we move through life like this blob on the earth, completely separate and uninvolved from it, you know, which is a complete and utter illusion. You know, if we take away the air for four minutes, then we you know, we don't we don't last very long with with all of the life that's going around us: the water, the food, the air, gravity. What happened to gravity? <laughs> if we lost gravity, we'd be hanging up on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, we just we 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 just we're so. We, we forget how much we're affected, just like sitting outside and the changing light, the changing sunlight. So one moment we're baking, the next moment we're cool, the next moment the wind's howling, the next moment it's still, and that's all affecting our own inner weather system. And there's something very beautiful and informative about sensing that, that we are part of the landscape and we're affected by the landscape. And then there's a stillness that can, that can come even if it's just stillness of the body and the mind still raging, we can feel the stillness because there's a certain stillness in nature, the trees and the grasses. And most of our lives, we're not so still. And if the body and if the mind, if the if the body's not still, the mind's not going to be that still, usually. And if we're not so still, it's hard to settle, it's hard to see clearly. 
think about the times you've been really agitated and restless and anxious and worried. We don't see very clearly. To understand what's true, to understand ourselves in life, we need to have a very, we have need a depth of awareness, depth of presence. So the meditation supports that, being the nature supports that. This is from Eckhart Tolle. He says, whenever you bring your attention to anything natural, anything that has come into existence without human intervention, you step out of the prison of conceptualized thinking and to some extent participate in the state of connectedness with being in which everything natural still exists. To bring your attention to a stone, a tree, or an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it, to hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of deep rest in yourself. So we're going to be encouraging you when you have time and space here to do that, to take pauses, to sit with things, to meander and just feel where you're called, to sit with an aspen tree, some of the large, beautiful, smooth stones in the river, um, or whatever it is. It could be, uh, who knows, an ant colony, or a woodpecker. And to, and to allow that dialogue that, that to be affected, to be receive the, the blessing or the teaching. So I hiked a lot in these mountains over the years and um, have my particular favorite uh, groves. Not just grove, my favorite grove is here, but my favorite groves, <laughs> groves plural, um, and spent many an afternoon just sitting you know, up against the bark of a the trunk of a ponderosa or between two ponderosas, one of my favorite things to do. Sometimes they grow like two columns um, and just to feel the, the effect of that you know, the stillness that can come it's a blessing another thing I like about being outdoors in this kind of retreat is it's very simple we realize how little we need to be happy you know, we don't need all of our stuff and our computers and our cars and our houses and Whatever it is that we're obsessed about, a new iPad 3.0 or whatever it is, the latest gizmos, like, we don't have any of that here. We don't need it. None of it works anyway, so it's fine. So, and we see that there's a, there's a contentment and, and peace available without all of that stuff cluttering our attention. And we're invited into uh, this quality of beginner's mind. Beginner's mind we talk a lot about in meditation. Um, where we bring a childlike curiosity to our experience, especially to nature. So, which is easy, easy to lose. 
Because the mind, the mind usually doesn't live in this childlike wonder. The mind lives in the in the realm of the known, in the realm of the conceptual, and um, so perceives the world through its concepts rather than directly. So we might walk past an amazing tree, and the mind might go, "Oh, yeah, oh, it's a Douglas fir. Cool." And we think, and we think we know that tree because we know what it is conceptually. Or maybe we're botanists and we know the the species of the flower and what they're related to and their Latin names and all of that. But we actually experience and we actually feeling, tasting that as if for the first time. You know, I love coming to a place like this where I've been coming for almost twenty years, and. You know, like this tree that we sat, some of us sat by uh, on the pathway here. And I never know that tree. I'll never know that tree. I get a little taste of it. I get a little sense of it in different light, different times of year. But it's always new. It's always changing. It's always fresh. If I bring that quality of attention. Otherwise, it's, oh, that's that old tree sitting by the road that I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's still here. <laughs> Lots of those other ones in the forest, too. So, but when we stop and we slow down enough, when we when we take in anything, any it, it, any everything's a miracle. You know? Just the grasses that are growing here. So, um, this is from Henry Miller, who uh, uh, the writer who took up painting later in life and. He's using for me, he's using the, the metaphor of painting as a metaphor for meditation or this quality of beginner's mind. He says, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. And meditation is the same. Mindfulness is the same. When we is, is to see fresh, to see clearly. And when we're looking through those eyes, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at an amazing paradise. There's that lovely line from... Um, I don't know what the source of this is. Um, the William Blake's, the poet William Blake's wife has a line from somewhere that says, Oh, I miss my husband so. He's so often in paradise. I miss my husband so. He was so awake and so alive and you feel it in his poetry and he was just a complete, he would devour the nature that he lived in. Or as Gary Larson from the far side puts it in this cartoon, there's a bunch of cows eating in the field, and there's one cow who's, I guess, living with beginner's mind. He's startled, and he's looking around going, Hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass.
So there's a lovely line from Kabir, the poet Kabir, who, speaking to the teachings of nature, he says, when my eyes and ears are awake, when my eyes and ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like the scriptures. My eyes and ears are awake. Even the leaves on the trees are like teachings from the scriptures, from the holy books. So, and that's really what I feel about this work that we're doing, this joyful work, is we're receiving, you know, beautiful teachings all the time if we're present. As the sign says in Vegas, you have to be present to win. You have to be present to wake up. You have to be present to be alive, present to see the beauty, present to know what's here. So um, one of the first things we notice in the outdoors, which is why we build these big structures, is we see the truth of change, the truth of transience, that everything in nature is changing all the time. The light, the temperature, the colors, the wind, the moisture, the humidity, forms, the seasons, the grasses, the flowers, the cycles of birth and death. You know, it's just, it's just, that's its nature, it's nature. Is, is transient movement, birth, growth, generation, flowering, decay, and death. And the cycle begins. And we all know that intellectually, and we know we, we see that in our experience, but when we allow that to keep touching us, you know, we're, we're, we have amazing amnesia as, as, as human beings, and we forget. And so these teachings, these practices, what we say, what you read in books and texts, they're all just reminders because we forget. It's always amazing how what we forget that we know. And as we keep re-experiencing, it becomes more rooted in us. So we become less surprised when somebody changes. My goodness. <laughs> or our relationship changes. Or something in our body stops working and we're shocked. What do you mean it's not working? (laughs) Our favorite shirt that we've worn, I, I often have, I wear the same thing over and over. And I think it's, I don't think really it's going to last forever, but some part of me does, because whenever it starts fraying around the collar, I go, oh my God, my shirt's fraying. (laughs) <laughs> it's decaying <laughs> and I'm always shocked <laughs> even though I know of course it's not going to last but I'm still surprised <laughs> so we you know we, we keep practicing to see this more deeply so when we look in the mirror and we go oh some more wrinkles oh we're not surprised <laughs> more grey hair less hair whatever it is or hair coming out in different places that didn't used to, like the ears and the nose. (laughs) 
but there's uh, there's a certain there's a profound poignancy about coming into very visceral relationship with that transience of life that we see in everything in the natural world. You know, in our lives, you know, we've you know as a civilization we've tried to sort of mitigate the 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 um, the effects of that. You know, creating plastics and things that seemingly last and keep out the elements and the changing heat and whatever. Uh, it's a complete vain attempt, as you, as we know. But so to be to be there's something very um, you know. I was just sitting outside and uh, in, doing an eyes open meditation and just looking at the grasses, and it's just full of life and death. You know, it's full of new grasses and it's full of dead grasses and it's full of broken twigs and it's full of lively beetles and. And there's something in this that resonates. Oh yes, that's true. That's the nature of things. That's how it is. That's how it's supposed to be because that is how it is. The Dharma teachings, uh, the Dharma means natural law. That is one of the natural laws we learn to come in alignment with. So we don't get so upset when things are difficult because we know they're going to change. We don't get so giddy and hold on to things when they're amazing because we know they're going to change. The the great uh, liberators from us from holding on to that which we can't hold on to, and we all know the folly of holding on. But who here is free of holding on to things <laughs> that they love, or trying to get rid of that which we don't like? What else does nature teach us? It teaches about time. Half of you are carrying watches, half of you happily dispense with your watches. When we come out into nature, we shift from linear time to a non-linear time that's not on a schedule, it's not run by minutes and hours and days. We see through the illusion of time. Time is just a conventional reality. Yeah, it has its you know. It's nice to know that five thirty we're going to have dinner, and we, we can all agree on that, and we can all get fed at the same time. It has its place, but we can touch something beyond that conventional time when we come out. We can touch that anywhere in our practice, or, but it's also it's more available, the timeless. I used to lead these retreats. We would raft down the Green River. Uh, for about 10 days and that part of the Green Rivers the, the canyon walls are about 250 to 290 million years old and you really get a sense of the timeless you know, when you think about the span of our lives which would be a speck of sand in a vast ocean compared to 290 million years or we reflect on I was reading something that I uh, was talking about uh, the trees have been around on the Earth's surface for 400 million years. And the first generators of uh, oxygen 
vast forest before any other life here was here before we, because the, the environment was inhospitable. So another thing that we come to come into more visceral contact with is um, as part of uh, coming into contact with the changing nature of things is we come into contact with the uncertainty of things, the unreliability of things, the undependability of things. So one of the things I love about being outdoors, especially when I'm doing backpacking retreats, is we've no idea what's going to happen. You know, the one particular year I did that Green River trip uh, in Utah, which is usually very dry most of the year and has sparse rain. We got the annual rainfall equivalent in that 10 days of our retreat. <laughs> you know, everyone came with their T-shirts and their shorts and their sun hats and, <laughs> and got completely soaked <laughs> for 10 days bags, everything was drenched. I know. I found out my waterproofs were no longer waterproof. Um, and so it challenges, it challenges us. There's a rub. You know, there's something really uh, great in that way to be challenged in because our lives are often so predictable and we go to sleep when things are predictable. And the truth is life isn't predictable. It's very unpredictable. The only, the only uncertainty is the only certainty there is in life. It's one of the great Buddhist reflections to reflect on the uncertainty of life, of death. Another thing that I like about practicing outdoors is sensing into the imperfection of things. And we all have, most people I meet anyway, have a pretty strong drive to perfectionism and to be on this endless self-improvement project, self-help project that um, that is never enough, never good enough. I can never read enough books to find the right thing to fix me and make me into this perfect personality that I'm supposed to be. Good luck, I haven't met anybody yet, thank God, who's like that. <laughs> but we come out into nature and we see that you know, what, what does perfect mean? What is a perfect aspen tree? What is a perfect ponderosa pine? What is a perfect hummingbird? There's no such thing. It's just a, another concept we overlay on our experience and then we try to fit our, ourselves into it and we suffer. Yeah. This, this landscape is perfectly imperfect. Yeah. And we don't complain if the, you know, if a like this beautiful, look at this beautiful old uh, ponderosa pine that's been dead for decades. And um, we keep waiting for it to fall over, but it never does. <laughs> and it's beautiful in its dead, decaying perfection. Perfectly imperfect. And we don't go, oh, they could do with a few more branches on the left side to balance it out. You know, the feng shui is a little off there, you know. No, we just see that it's, it has its own unique beauty and character. <coughs> and hopefully that, that rubs off on ourselves. We see that we're also just this unique, idiosyncratic, slightly wacky part of nature. <coughs> 
that's that's fine just as it is. What else do we see? We see we start to feel a little more connected, a little less separate maybe. It's this funny thing that we think we're separate from everything else, isn't it? It's a little alienating. You know, one of the things I like to reflect on, and I talk about this a lot, I'm waiting for a biologist to tell me the exact details on this, but um, since we're 70% water, mass or menos, that you know, if we stay on a piece of land for a certain period of time... <coughs> You know, just as everything in our body is always being replenished, so too the water in our cells and our blood. So, I don't know, maybe after a few days of drinking from the Vallecito spring here, that we're more Vallecito spring than anything else. Yeah? There were 70% Vallecito's mountain water. But we look at our body and go, hmm, nope, it's just me, I'm just the same as I was. <laughs> Nothing's changed. But the reality, you know, we're eating the food, the, the water, the air, and our whole being is completely transformed from a certain perspective. great John Muir line that he goes something like pick out one thing and you'll find it hitched to every other thing in the universe I was Thich Nhat Hanh would say when he lifts up this piece of paper he would say what do you see? what do you see? this is a second grade test what do you see? Piece of paper? Yeah? (laughs) No, no piece of paper? (laughs) It's a piece of paper. (laughs) And as that master comes along, Max, you have that. It's a piece of paper. But it's also, you know, as you said, it's, it's forest, it's trees, it's water, it's sunlight, it's moon, it's the galaxy, it's everything, it's the Big Bang. It's all in there. If we see deeply... We don't usually see so deeply because we look at the surface of things, the appearance of things. The Buddha often spoke about do not be fooled by the appearances of things. These things seem appear seemingly separate. That's the appearance, but not so separate. This is from Diane Ackerman talking about connections. He says, Watching life, it's easy to spot the signs. The push to birth is a giveaway. The urge to break or squeeze towards daylight through shells and seeds and vaginal tracts. So is the hunger for growth, for dividing and multiplying for clumps of cells, masses of eggs and milky clouds of larvae. So too the tendency to separate, to make boundaries and membranes and skin but also to join, to merge and knot and pull, to flock and swam. Likewise, the impulse 
to fidget among creatures, to tremble and blink and shimmer and wobble and shiver and flex and clench, to hold on, to grip with hooks and suckers and little flicks of keratin, and the call to voice, to signal, hoot, howl, hisp, chirp, warp, bark, wail. Pervasive in life is a propensity to breathe, eat, digest, excrete, copulate, collaborate, conspire, suffer aging and death. We do not have to wait for modern biology to tell us that we are akin to other creatures. It was probably our first great thought. So another of the things that I that I particularly appreciate being outside is, uh, and it's w- one of the main reasons I do this work and why I lead so many nature retreats around the country, is um, to help people fall back in love with the earth. You know, if we're sitting in our offices and in our cars and our houses and our malls, and we're not having any or very much visceral contact with the land and the elements then it becomes a concept. Oh yeah, I love the beach. I haven't been for 15 years, but I love the beach. Or I love the forest, but I haven't walked and smelt it after a, after a you know, autumnal rain. When we spend time outside, you know, we can't help but fall in love. Is anybody, anybody fall in love today <laughs> with something or many things? Yeah, I mean a lot. I mean, gorgeous. Yeah, the hummingbirds or the aspen or flowers or the bugs or and of course we take care of that which we, we love if we love something we want to take care of it just like our loved ones there's these um, I teach out my main place I teach is at Spirit Rock Meditation Center it's one of the main centers in the west coast and um there's all kinds of wonderful wildlife. We have these turkeys that hang out there all year, and they're very wacky and extremely beautiful. When they when the males are doing their display, um, and there's lots of fawns this time of year. That and that because it's a you know, been a sanctuary for many years, like here, the the animals are particularly trusting. So you, you know the med- med- students on the retreat get a lot of contact with the fawns and the turkeys and. Uh, the swallows nest up uh, around the meditation hall, and you know, just I just taught a retreat last week, and there was two nests, each with three uh, fledgling um, uh, swallows, and then you can see them shivering and looking for mom with the food, and you know, everyone's just falling over themselves in love with these little darling birds, you know, and uh, it's a beautiful thing to let the heart be touched like that. You know, to let the heart be open. You know, it's it's so easy for us to, as I've said, to separate and to feel distrusting or cautious. And, and it's something about nature that invites the heart to just blow open. You know, and what would the world be like if we all allowed the heart to blow open a little more? So let yourselves fall in love. You, you won't be able to help it. It'll just happen. <laughs> fall in love with the land and... This is from Dostoevsky. He says, Love all creation, the whole of it and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of light, the animals, the plants. Love everything. If you love everything, 
you will perceive the divine mystery in things. And once you have perceived it, you'll begin to sense the mystery more and more every day. And you will at last come to love the world with an abiding universal love. So, and the Buddha spoke a lot about cultivating the heart of boundless love, to love all things. So notice that as you're moving about the days here. Let the heart be touched. Notice that. Feel it. Allow it. Enjoy it. Relish it. As we bring attention to something, it allows it to grow and to blossom. Same thing with joy. You know, so much of practice is about balance. Meditation is a lot about balance, balancing mindfulness and energy and concentration, different factors. In our lives, we're often living out of balance. Working too hard, too busy, too fast, too disconnected, too heavy, too much pain, too much suffering. And it's really important to allow ourselves to, to be touched by joy by beauty, by love, by gladness, by uplift. And so to really allow that again to happen, to, to nourish you, to, to allow the joy to nourish you. And you're sitting out there watching the hummingbirds feed and seeing that, that throats of whatever that wild, luminous color is on their neck, the pink and reds. And I was teaching this retreat down in Baja. I do these kayaking retreats down there, Mexico. And we were doing this floating meditation out in the Sea of Cortez, a few miles out from shore. And... Um, you know, I, I pray for the sighting of close sighting of whales because we get visited every now and then by whales, and um, and so we you know we're floating, sitting, and, and we heard this pretty loud whale a few miles away, big when they blow, and you know we were sitting for a while. It came closer and it came closer, and it started to get louder, <laughs> and then we started to see it, and it was a big whale, and whales are pretty big anyway, but this was a big whale, it came closer. It turns out it was a finback whale, which is the second largest whale in the, in the world, about 100, 120 feet long. And it came to within about mm, 150 feet, which is probably about the length of its body, uh, and stayed a while, blew, looked at us a little bit, and went back to its fishing and playing and and just it's almost hard to contain the, the joy of just being so close to that kind of creature. It's amazing. So you'll all have your own kinds of visitations and being touched by things. And hopefully one of the things that we're, we're left with is gratitude. When our hearts are open, when we're present, uh, we feel grateful for the, for the blessing, for the opportunity to, to be here, to, 
to be in this kind of beauty and hopefully we'll take that with us into our lives and our relationships I'll close with a poem. So I'll close with, um, I've got so many poems, I don't know which one to close with. I'll close with one of my poems. How about that? I started writing poems, well, I didn't start been writing poems the last couple of years. This is, so this is a poem I wrote down in Baja, where the sunrises are just unbelievably gorgeous and they're very slowly they're about three hours long from first light it's about four in the morning it's called dawn's palette she came today a banquet of colors on her palette spraying the sea indigo and lilac with a sweep of her brush she lit the sky on fire meanwhile the dark leaves of the forest rest in quiet shade happily overlooked by her artwork. And as time passed, she opened her chest of silver, coating the sea in bullion, then every shade of gray. Later, as she breathed her tropical breath, thick clouds billowed, eclipsing the rose horizon with a heavy solemnity. While I prayed to the gods of the morning, with nothing but gratitude in this growing heart, What else is left when I'm open so wide and fill to the brim with grace? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.